Uh, Last week, many of us gathered on Sunday evening, far many more of us than I thought, so thank you, thank you, thank you. We gathered on a Sunday evening for the first time in many years in an attempt to begin to take steps toward better celebrating Sunday as the Lord's day and not the Lord's hour when we're free and it's convenient uh, to us. Now, we want to better use that time, the whole day, but that evening time, we want to better use that to fellowship together, to pray together, and to take the Lord's Supper together. I don't know about all of you, but I was greatly, greatly edified and encouraged. We got straight in the car and headed south to North Carolina uh, right after the meeting. That was the best mood I have ever packed up and started to travel in because it was right after the evening service. So thank you for, for helping me with my attitude. I'm very excited and look forward to more time together in the future. But on Sunday evening, we also sang together just two songs, small group, no sound equipment, old hymns, just Jeremy and a guitar and our voices. And it was some of the best singing musically and spiritually I've heard in this place. We opened with the hymn, The Love of God. Greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. And then we closed with the hymn, And Can It Be? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So we opened with the love of God. And we closed with the love of God. We rightly love the love of God. But do we understand the love of God? Do we know the love of God? And let's start with this this morning. This is one of our main goals this morning. Do you know about the love of God? Like the last couple of weeks with grace in John chapter 10, we love the idea, but what do we really mean by that term Grace. What is grace? What does grace do? Well, same question this morning. What is love? And what does love do? God loves us. Okay, great. Everyone will say that. What does that look like? How does that play itself out in your day-to-day life? And what about God's love when everything falls apart? What about God's love when everything seems to be going wrong? What about God's love when you lose that job, when that relationship falls apart, when you don't get or accomplish that thing, whatever it is that you are aiming at? What about God's love when things are very bad and you are very sad? What about God's love when death? John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is one of the clearest and most helpful revelations of the true nature of God's amazing love and what it does for his people. Let's see this morning if we like God's love. Let's see what that love does in this text and why. This is the relationship of God's love to the almost constant, always hard troubles of life. And I have to say this as we start a new chapter, this is one of the best chapters of the Bible. It just, it just is. One of my favorites. J.C. Ryle calls this one of the most remarkable texts in the New Testament. And he is correct. This is a very important text. There are truths in this text that could be life-changing for you. They have been for me. I'm still struggling to learn them, but I love them. I want to love them more, and I want to live in light of them more. In John chapter 10, verse 24, the Jews have just said to Jesus, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. John chapter 11. John chapter 11 tells us quite plainly. Here is the Christ. One of the clearest revelations of the person of Christ in both word and deed. Verse 25 is the big idea. It's going to be the main point of the next month or so that we're in this text but in verse 25 Jesus says I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live that is very good news in light of our very impending and very certain deaths but we're not to the big idea yet everything is going to kind of orient around that and relate to that and build and point to that central idea But first, this morning, we have an almost equally big and yet significantly less known and big idea. 
So let's get right to it. We are talking about the love of God in light of the troubles of life. How do those two things relate? Five points. I'm on a five points kick lately. I'm always on a five points kick, by the way, if you, you probably were aware of that. Point number one, we're going to start with the fact that God loves his people. We need to assert that fact. But then we need to define that fact and what that means. So then we're going to move to point number two, the oddly uh, worded point. God troubles his people. We want to see how these two things relate. And then we'll start to get to some of the why. Point number three, we will see that God troubles people for his people for his glory. Point number four, God troubles his people for our good. And here's your application will be point number five. Believe that God troubles you because he loves you. That's the plan. Love and trouble. How do those things relate? John chapter 11. Pastor Mike has read the first part for us. I really wanted us to get the whole passage and the whole story in our brains, so we broke it up. He's read the first part. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 28 and read through the end of the chapter, but then we're going to circle back and we'll focus on verses 1 through 6. So pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. John 11 verse 28. When she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. 
Thus far, the reading of God's Word. If you would bow with me, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this Word. We thank You that in Your sovereignty, You have ordained for us this text. We thank You that in Your perfect providence, You have specifically picked each and every one of us to be here this morning for this Word. Father, I pray that You would help the preaching of this Word. Father, our desire is a sight of the glory of Christ. Our desire is to find life and joy and peace in Him. Father, that happens as Your Spirit works through Your Word. So, Father, we ask, please, that You would help us to see Jesus Christ. Um, Show us His greatness. Father, show us His glory. And as we bring into this room various different troubles and struggles and difficulties and hardships, Father, help us to increasingly understand those things in light of Your love, in light of Your glory, in light of eternity, and what Jesus Christ has done and is always doing on behalf of His people. Father, I desperately need Your help in this time. Please help the preaching of Your Word. Please help the hearing of Your Word. Please show us Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Point number one, God loves His people. Did you catch the repetition at the opening of this beautiful story? It colors and gives context to all that follows. But first, let's consider our context for a moment. Look back for a second at the end of chapter 10 at verses 40 through 42. We skipped them last week. They'll they'll help transition us to this week. All the way back in 31, we saw the Jews again try to stone Jesus. That is, murder Jesus. At least in verse 39, they're only trying to arrest him. Well, it's time to go for Jesus. We're not 100% sure where Jesus heads, but he heads north and he heads east. The main idea is that Jesus is not in Jerusalem. Jesus leaves Jerusalem and returns to the site of John the Baptist's former ministry. Some would argue that this is a sort of inclusio, kind of bookends to the first part of the story. We hear first of John the Baptist all the way back in chapter 1, verse 6. Now we hear of him for the last time here. And note for a second what we hear about John. What is it that characterizes John and his ministry? Look at verse 41. Look at what the people were saying. Everything John said about Jesus was true. That's John. All about Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. John talked about Jesus. John taught about Jesus. John pointed to Jesus. Everything that John did was for the purpose of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be known for? Uh, Everything he said about Jesus was true. That's what I want to be known for. That's what I want to actually desire. I actually want to desire that I would decrease and that he would increase. That's John. He pointed people to Jesus. Now let's see what this text says about Jesus. Everything John says was true. Well, everything John, the writer of this story, says about Jesus is true. And so the first thing we're seeing is that Jesus is away. That is a key point. And then verse 1 gives us a couple of the key elements of any good story as verse 1 introduces us our characters and our conflict. Characters and conflict. The characters are these three siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. The conflict is that Lazarus, one of the siblings, was ill. Tells us that this is Lazarus of Bethany. So there is our setting. There are, by the way, two Bethanies in the book of John. The first is mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 28, up in the north where John was baptizing. So ironically, at the time of the story, Jesus is around the other Bethany, far away from this Bethany where Lazarus lies ill. Which is, this Bethany is only about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is away. And then verse 2 gives us a little more information about our characters. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. If you look ahead to chapter 12, oddly, John doesn't record that story for us until after 
this story. John 11, this is mentioned. Here's Lazarus and Mary. It's in John 12 that Mary actually comes and anoints Jesus' feet. Well, that tells us that John expects his readers to know this story. He, he expects his readers to know this Mary as Matthew and Mark, who were written a couple of decades earlier, also record this story about Mary. But we haven't yet gotten to that story. That'll be in chapter 12. We also, of course, know Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. Martha is distracted. She's running around. Mary is focused. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says to Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. I love that. That's one you should memorize. That's one you should put on your fridge or your computer screen. Church, one thing is necessary. You and I are anxious about many, many things. One thing is necessary. Are you attending to the one thing that is necessary? But with these brief kind of snippets we get of them throughout other spots, it's apparent that there's a special sort of relationship here between Jesus and these three siblings. And verse 3 reveals that to us clearly as we see the nature of this relationship. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Skip verse 4. This is a masterfully constructed story. No wasted words. So when words and ideas are repeated, they are important. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And if you skip down to verse 36 as well and peek ahead, that draws attention to this again. This love is so evident that even outsiders notice it. See how he loved him. John wants us to understand. John will not let us miss that Jesus loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary. God loves his people. That is our first and oh-so-important point. We have sadly had to leave John chapter 10 behind, but we never leave the good shepherd of John chapter 10 behind. Remember all that we saw that the shepherd does for the sheep, uh, for, that our Savior does for our souls. But how does God relate to you? How does God, or does God, care for you? We saw that the shepherd owns the sheep, calls the sheep, knows the sheep, leads the sheep, feeds the sheep, is with the sheep, saves the sheep, and dies for the sheep. Then for the last two weeks, we've been seeing how gracious the shepherd is toward the sheep. Christ is precious because Christ is gracious. So we could add a ninth that the shepherd graces the sheep. All this that the shepherd does for the sheep is grace. And if you were then to put all nine of those together you could accurately summarize them with uh, a tenth. The shepherd loves the sheep. That's simple. That's what we see in those nine things. The shepherd loves the sheep, and here's how that plays itself out in the grace and in these other things that he does to care for the sheep. That's our point. God loves his people. But what does that really mean? What does that look like? What, what is love? We live in such a love-confused culture these days. We've made love squishy and sappy and sentimental. We've made love almost entirely selfish. We've actually flipped love, uh, what it's supposed to be, entirely into something else. It's exact opposite. We've re redefined love to mean little more than absolute acceptance and affirmation. You love me by praising me and telling me that I am great and good no matter what I do or who I am. But that's not love. We know that's not love. You do not love me by leaving me to my sinful self. Remember, sin is that, that inward turn. Sin is selfishness in the fancy Latin. It is incurvitas in se. Right? Sin is the inward turn. Sin is to be turned in on oneself. You do not love me by affirming me in that and encouraging me toward that. 
Here's why we've just got to be so careful kind of with the cultural narrative right now, the whole follow your heart or the whole thing, if this is what you feel, you need to actualize it and act it out. What if the very definition of sin is what you feel within, obsessed with yourself, focused on yourself? What, is that, what if that's the very thing that's killing you? Right? Scripture is completely different. It is the opposite. We don't love people by encouraging them to follow their hearts or to actualize or bring out what is within their hearts. That's not Love. It is not absolute affirmation. It's not unconditional acceptance. It's not just, yes, you're wonderful and great no matter what. No, you love me by seeking my good. That's, that's, that's what love is. It's quite simple. You love me by seeking my good. Love is to seek the good of the loved. And that means that the highest love is to seek the highest good of the loved. And what is the highest good? What is the sumum bonum, the highest good of anyone and everyone? Okay, we're in a church. I'm a pastor. We know that it is God and it is his glory. That's what this text is about. That's what this text is trying to drive home. This is about the relationship between God's love, God's glory, and the death and the difficulty that we face in this fallen world. How do these three things come together and relate. Do you know how all of those things relate? Do you understand what it really means when you sing, Jesus loves me, this I know? That's a profoundly important statement. Do you understand what it really means? This text tells you what it means. Do you understand how God's glory relates to that? Do you understand how all your hardship and suffering and sickness and death relate to all of that? Because this text tells you. We talked a few weeks ago how the shepherd knowing the sheep includes the fact that Jesus knows us in our sin. He knows the sinfulness of the sheep. That's why the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's because of their sin. It's because, obvious here, but this is important, sin is bad. For the good shepherd to be truly good, he has to do something about that which is truly bad for the sheep. That which is death for the sheep. And that something is his own death for the sheep. In the place of the sheep. The shepherd takes the sin and the death that the sheep deserve so that we, the sheep, can live. That's the gospel. In the same way, when we say that God loves his people... We cannot forget that first, love is to seek the good of the loved. And then that second, sin is bad. Therefore, again, for God to truly love his people, to truly seek their good, he has to do something about that which is their bad. He has to do something about the sin which is death and the sin that separates us from him, him who is our highest good. And without an understanding of that, what follows, what we're about to read, what I'm about to say, will make no sense to you. Without an understanding of that, what follows may actually look bad to you. But I want you to know that God loves his people. You can hear that almost anywhere. Oprah will probably tell you that today, right? Anyone will tell you that today. Most of it is meaningless fluff. Most of it has nothing to do with love. And so, again, in being careful with our words, we have to define our terms and what we mean. What I really want you to know is how God loves his people. If God loves you, what do you think that should look like? How do you think that love should play itself out and demonstrate itself in your life, in today, in this last week, in this last year or two? Your answer may be different than God's answer in what follows. But note for now simply that God loves his people. It's repeated here. So whatever follows, it's it's couched in those terms. This is what we start with. And note, by the way, that his people are aware of that love as well. In verse 3, look at their appeal in verse 3 one more time before we move on. Note that they base their appeal not on their love for Jesus, but on his love for them. He whom you love is ill. We're going to pray together this afternoon. Please stay. One o'clock. We're going to pray. That's that's an important principle to keep in mind as we seek to begin to pray better. Two good prayer principles in verse 3. 
They come to Jesus believing that Jesus can help. Right? They believe that he can actually do something about it. I think part of our prayer problem is we don't think that God can actually do anything about our prayer, and so we don't pray. Uh, so they believe that Jesus can help. And second, they appeal to Jesus' love for them as the basis for that request for help. Their appeal is not, hey, we're pretty great. You know, we've been following you really faithfully. I'm about to wipe your feet with my hair. Right? I really, really love you, so you should do this thing. He says, no, 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 the one that you love, Jesus. Right? They appeal to his love for them. They base that. That's the basis for their request for help. And that's much of what we're saying in our praying. Help. Stay at 1 o'clock as we pray that together uh, as a church. Lazarus, by the way, uh, is a shortened form of the name Eleazar. The Hebrew name Eleazar. You know what that means? It means he whom God helped. Let's see how God helped Lazarus in this story. Point number one, God loves his people. Point number two, God troubles his people. And I'm seeking to make the case that God loves Lazarus by troubling Lazarus. Where do we see that? Look at verse 4. Let me read it again. This is an important verse. Jesus has heard now the request for help. His response, verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. Stop. Second part of the verse in a moment. This illness does not lead to death. Now, it sounds a little strange, as we have already read the story. Jesus says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. Look down at verse 14. Jesus says, Lazarus has died. Right? This illness does not lead to death. Ten verses later, he died. What? We know that Jesus is not dumb. We know that John did not contradict himself within a few short verses. Jesus must then mean something else in verse 4. We know that Lazarus dies. But we know that Lazarus is not going to stay dead. Lazarus temporarily dies, but he does not eternally die. Lazarus physically dies, but he does not spiritually die. Death is not the ultimate outcome of this illness. Or, what Jesus could be saying here is that the end or the purpose or the goal of this illness is not ultimately death. In the Greek, there is no verb there. In verse 4. In the Greek, there is no lead to. This illness does not lead to death. There's no verb. It's just the preposition pros, P R O S, which just means unto or toward. Metaphorically, it can mean intended end or purpose. This illness is not ultimately for the end or purpose of death. Well, what purpose could it be for then? What, what purpose could there be for sickness and death? We'll hold that thought. That's our, that's our next two points. But first, verse 6. Remember, we've already considered the repetition of Christ's love. Verse 3, verse 5. Look at what follows immediately after that love in verse 6. Look at what love does in verse 6. Don't miss this. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Remember, it's often the littlest words that are the biggest. And so it is here with that so at the beginning of verse 6. The word in the Greek is un. Un is a conjunction. Conjunctions connect. One Greek dictionary defines this word saying it is a conjunction indicating that something follows from another necessarily. Verse 5. Jesus loves them. Un. Therefore, Following from that necessarily, verse 6, Jesus stays. Sick, stays. Dying, waiting. I want to be very clear here. Jesus lets Lazarus die. I want to be even clearer here. Jesus decrees that Lazarus die. Jesus ordains that Lazarus die. Jesus determines that Lazarus died. Why do, I, why do I say that? Well, because this Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, as we've been seeing, is God himself. Chapter 1, verse 3, this Jesus, as God, is the creator of all. He creates all, and thus necessarily, by definition, he also decrees all. And what does that mean? 1689. 
Chapter 3, paragraph 1. From all eternity, God decreed, declared, stated, said. God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. That comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 46. We're coming up to Isaiah 46 uh, a few weeks in Sunday school. I don't, know, I don't know who has that one yet. I'm anxious. I'm, I, I want Isaiah 46. Verse 9, Isaiah 46. God says, I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So what is it that demonstrates this unique godness? What is it that sets God apart from all other contenders? Verse 10. I am God, verse 10, declaring, decreeing, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God himself declares that from the beginning, he has declared the end. This is what it means for God to be sovereign, to be king, to be in control. He decrees and declares all that comes to pass including Lazarus's illness, including Mary and Martha's fear, including Lazarus's death, including four days of Mary and Martha's mourning, including your fill in the blank with anything, with everything, whatever that hardest, most difficult of things is. This even, either applies to that or it doesn't. I'm arguing that it does. This is what I mean by God troubles his people. Now, I wasn't sure how best to word it. I'm intending to convey two ideas with the verb trouble. I want us to understand that whatever hardships, difficulties, sufferings, again, troubles, that is, I want us to understand that they ultimately come to us from God. They have to. That's just scripture from beginning to end makes that very, very clear. But I also want us to understand that that fact often troubles us. You know, I, I get that. But it, it shouldn't trouble us. That's what we're trying to get. Rightly understood, I want us to see that this is actually a source of great, great comfort. I want to encourage you with the idea that is, this is actually one of the greatest sources of comfort that we have and that we don't often utilize. I quoted for you an insane quote from Calvin's Institutes a while back. Uh, Calvin writes this. Catch this. Do you remember how Calvin finishes this statement? Calvin says, Nothing is more profitable than the knowledge of this doctrine. And he continues, Without certainty about this, life would be unbearable. Uncertainty about this thing, Calvin says, will make life unbearable. Nothing is more profitable for you to know, Calvin claims. Do you remember what it is? What is it? Sovereignty. Providence. Yes, same. same. Providence. Calvin argues that there's nothing more profitable for you to know than God's providence. I am fully convinced that that is one of the things that you most need to get through this difficult life. I mentioned back from chapter 10 last week that, that nothing could snatch us out of God's hand. It is a powerful hand. It is a hand of preservation. Nothing can remove us from that hand because nothing can contend with Almighty God. It is a hand of preservation and it is a hand of providence. And it cannot be one without the other. If you remove the providence, you don't have the preservation. Christians used to love and counsel with the providence of God. These days, more and more, I see caution and hesitation about counseling with the providence of God. I am hesitant about this caution. You need the providence of God. What is it? What is God's providence? Remember, pro videre, to see before. Video is just to see. It's seeing before, but because this is the all-powerful, almighty God, his foreseeing is also his foredoing, his foreordaining, his providence. What is it? Chapter 5, paragraph 1 of the 1689. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds 
directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. So when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about his, uh, his upholding and his sustaining of all things. And his specific directing and guiding and governing of all things. There is ultimately no such thing as chance or luck or fate. There is God. And he is sovereign. And he decides and decrees everything that is to happen. And then he perfectly carries out those decrees through his providence. Which means, if that's true, that means that circumstances, all circumstances, again, whatever that circumstance is in your mind right now, that most difficult of circumstances, whatever it is, all of it ultimately comes from God. Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, one of my favorites. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and ever-present power of God. Almighty, ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. When you think providence, I want you to think of God's gracious, wise, powerful, fatherly hand. And so that all things includes troubling things. God troubles his people. Jesus waits. Lazarus dies. God decrees. Lazarus dies. And what Jesus does here sheds much light on what God often does in his sometimes mysterious providential dealings with his people. Did you notice what Jesus said in verses 14 and 15 in a way? I thought it was funny. He says, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. And I am glad that I was not there, he goes on to say. Again, what in the world? How, what a thing to say. How could he say such things? How can that be? Only if God is providentially orchestrating all things. Only if there is a purpose, a good purpose in all of those things that God does. What could possibly be a purpose that allows Jesus to wait and to say that he is glad that Lazarus has died. Point number three. Here's the purpose. God troubles. Why? God troubles people for his glory. We just don't love the sound of that. We're just, we're uncomfortable with that. Let's just admit it and be honest. But it's there. Jesus says it. Look finally at the second half of verse four. Second half of verse 4. Get this, it'll change your life. You can get this verse. It, this illness, is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What can that mean? How can illness, how can death be for the glory of God? Well, remember... That the glory of God is is sort of like a summary, it's like the totality of all that God is. All that God is in his infinite perfection. In his indescribable beauty. The glory of God is all of that on display. The glory of God is the greatness of God showing and shining forth. And do you remember the absurd John Owen quote we considered last week? That just one true sight of the glory of Christ will give us relief from all that ails us. What? How could that be possible? Well, only if he is infinitely great and indescribably beautiful, so good that any true sight of him, knowledge of him, experience of him, relationship with him is life itself dispelling death is light itself dispelling darkness. What if seeing him and being with him is all that Scripture claims it to be? We we, we get tastes of this in relationships with one another, right? Uh, I dropped my family in North Carolina. I was in Charlotte yesterday. 
and I got to see some of my family that I hadn't seen in months. And just getting to hug them and to talk with them and to catch up with them was like, oh, oh, good, F family. And we got to talking. And it was just it was encouragement and bolstering. Here's family, here's relationship, here's people that I love and people who love me communicating and connecting, and it was good for my soul. We know that that's what relationships do, right? So just seeing them and embracing and hugging was like, oh, I feel better. That's good. Just magnify that infinitely. That, 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 that's God. That's what seeing Him is like. That's what communicating and relating to Him is like. He is life itself. And so it's seeing Him for who He is and being known by Him and knowing Him. That's everything. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says. What's the blessing? What is the good? They shall see. Is that a desire that you have, the desire to, to see this beatific vision, right? This, this good vision, this sight of God himself? If God is as good as Scripture says, if God is creator and sustainer of all, if there is no good apart from him, if he is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore, if everything you are ultimately looking for in all that you do and pursue is truly only found in him, then... Then, whatever must and can be done to give you a sight of His glory is good. If He is all of that, then He deserves to be seen as all of that. If He is all of that, then there is nothing better than the display of His glory. And Jesus tells us very clearly, you, cannot, you can dislike my words, here's Jesus' words. Jesus tells us that even sickness... Even death can and is for that ultimate purpose. This illness and all that follows is for the manifestation of the power, the love, and the wisdom of God. It is God putting himself and his greatness on display for all to see. The, the, the Dutch commentator, Herman Ritterboss, I've discovered him lately. He's one of the best. He says this in these verses. He says, it is for the glory of God... The words, it is for the glory of God, are fundamental for this whole story. Yes and amen. The story makes no sense without the glory. But we could and should expand that out. We could apply that a little more broadly. The words, it is for the glory of God, are fundamental for your whole life. Your story makes no sense without His glory. You will struggle to understand your life and the difficulties of that life and to find rest and joy and peace in the difficulties of your life if you continue to fail to see God as the center and God's glory as your chief end and aim. If you insist on insisting that your life is first and ultimately about you, you will struggle. But if the Bible is true, if God is who he says that he is, then you're not the center. And it's not about me. And that's actually good for me. And that's actually good for you. And the, more, the more that I, I was in Job this morning, my, my um, devotional reading had me at the end of Job where God just says, boom, shut up, Job. That's basically what God says. But God just reveals himself. Where were you? I'm stretching the earth and the heavens. Where are you numbering the stars? Where are you when I'm feeding each and he, he talks about specifically being aware of each and every animal giving birth and when and where. And so just the more that we read scripture, the more that I just, we don't comprehend God and all his greatness and glory. We don't appreciate him. You read the Psalms, you read what we're reading in Isaiah, you read what Jesus says here and our, just, our, our image, our picture of this God is just so, so little. But what if he is actually this comprehensively great and glorious? If he is, then him doing everything that he does to display that glory is for our good. Right? This is the most important point, though I'm giving it the least amount of time. We've talked a lot about the glory of God lately. We're going to talk about it much more as we work through Isaiah. But for now, I just want you to see the truth. It's there. Jesus says it. Illness and death for the glory of God. Illness and death, meaning the troubles of life, your troubles, whatever it is, whatever you have been facing, ultimately for the glory of God. I know it's hard. Let's, let's talk about it a little bit more. But I want to go ahead and move on to our next point because it's directly connected to this point. These two things are not in conflict 
with one another. What I want you to see is that though it is right and good for the God of all glory to do all to maximize the display of that glory, that actually ultimately ends up resulting in your good as well. God's glory and his people's good go hand in hand. And so point number four, while God troubles his people for his own glory, he also troubles his people for their own good. This is in part why I wanted to read this whole chapter. This point is going to come out more from the rest of the story. It's implied there in verse 4 when Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. But then we're going to see it oh so clearly in Jesus' interactions with Mary and Martha, in the demonstration of his great love for Lazarus, and in the raising of Lazarus itself. And we have many weeks to come in this wonderful text. But for now, I want to leave you with an encouragement to begin to consider the troubles you have faced, are facing right now, or will soon face in an entirely different light. In this light, in light of God's glory and your ultimate good. Yes, this is a hard truth. There is no question. Let's not act like this is an easy truth. But it's often the hardest truths that are the most helpful truths. We have all of us thought... Maybe yesterday, if God really loved me, you know, how could he let this happen? But then we start to discover Reformed theology and the doctrines of grace. We go into a more robust picture of the bigness and sovereignty of God. And so our question shifts to, if God really loved me, how could he decree this happen? It kind of raises the stakes, doesn't it? Well, the text is giving us the answer. Ultimate glory ultimate good. And one of the main things that I want you to see that this text makes so clear is that it is often the very things that look so bad that God is going to use to bring the most good. This is what happens for Lazarus. And by the way, there's one obvious but important point that we can draw from this story. Even those whom Jesus loves suffer, get sick, wait, wonder, mourn, and eventually die. So we need to accept that fact. We need to reject any prosperity gospel nonsense that promises or even implies freedom from those things. But if even those whom Jesus loves get sick and suffer, that means that those things, those troubles, are not and cannot in any way be indications of God's lack of love for his people. Jesus loves Lazarus. And Jesus waits. Sometimes delay is the very demonstration of love. Sometimes the very troubles themselves are the very demonstration of love. And what I want to argue is that what Jesus does here, he does for all of us, all of the time. If God is the sovereign God of Scripture, if his providence particular providence is what he claims in scripture, then this is what God is doing for you in all times and in all things, every single little thing. I was sitting on this last night. I was thinking of this sermon through it. I was sitting on the runway at JFK for like 30 minutes doing nothing. I mean, there's like, I can see a hundred places for the plane to go. Why are we not going to one of the places, the thing? Why are we sitting here for 30 minutes? And I'm tempted to get really, really frustrated. Well, these people must be stupid. Or there must be something. I'm tempted to get frustrated and angry and think about these things. But then I'm about to preach these very words and say, hey, what, what if God has particularly ordained this weight here? I know that he has. I don't know all the why that he has. Imagine the mind that can do that. With the 200 people on that plane, with all the flights that are coming in, all the airplanes across the world, everything going on that God, this mind, can direct and ordain and do all of these things to bring about all of his good and glorious ends. And I'm this tiny little speck in here thinking and wondering. But it, it, it's humbling. Oh, I can sit here and read my book a little bit longer, right? No, no big deal. The, the providence of God can be a very, very helpful thing, every single little thing. So... What if the very thing you are looking to as proof of God's lack of care is actually the very proof that he very much does care for you? What if the, what looks like the cruelest of delays could actually be the kindest of care? Jesus knows that there are more important things 
then you be delivered immediately from whatever trial or difficult circumstance you are facing. Parents, it seems to be increasingly the case that we think that our job is to ensure that our children exist in a constant state of immediate happiness. So we entertain them to death with screens. I can tell you how many kids in the airport and on the plane were just, just flicking on a screen the whole time. We allow them to pitch fits. We give them what they want. We refuse to discipline them. Again, Scripture says we hate our kids when we refuse to discipline them. I think we should just remember that. Parents, don't, don't do that. Parents, what if your children have souls that go on into eternity? What if they will one day stand before the judgment seat of God? Parent them in light of that, in light of the eternal, not the immediate. Our job as parents is not first to seek their immediate happiness, but their ultimate good, and that good is God. That means I exist to teach them, to teach them to obey, to, to discipline them when they do not, to, to love them and enjoy them and pour out affection on them, but to do all of it in the context of the gospel as I try to tell them and show them that God is the highest good and that all they need is Christ. How do I parent my kids? Only God can save my kids. I know that. But he works through means. What can I do to help prepare them to see that Christ is their highest good? I'm going to parent differently if God and eternity is my goal. In the same way, God is going to parent us differently if he himself and eternity is his goal. So back to love. We redefine it, accepting, affirming me. We also tend to redefine love's timeline. You love me if you do what makes me feel good right now. But God has a bigger plan, a better plan. He's working for your good. He is working to maximize that good. You want immediate comfort. He wants your eternal comfort. You want to be happy right now. He wants you to be happy forever. And he allows and ordains some difficult things right now for that forever happiness. Because remember, his knowing us includes knowing us in our sin. His loving us, seeking our good, means doing something about our sin. And we know that something is ultimately Christ and the cross. That something is ultimately the gospel. That God has solved our sin problem in Christ. That, God, that Christ is the resurrection and the life. He dies so that we can live. He is the resurrection and the life. By the way, Jesus says that this illness is for glory. Most of the time in the gospel of John, God and Christ and glory are often directly connected to the cross. John 12, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the cross. He's talking about the cross. And this, chapter 11, leads to that. It is going to be the resurrection of Lazarus that is the immediate cause of the death of Christ. But really, we know that it's the death of Christ that is the cause of the resurrection of Lazarus. In all of this, Christ is glorified. Keep that in mind if you're having a hard time with the previous point, that God decrees trouble for his own glory. Keep in mind where he maximizes and most displays that glory. He says, I want you to see me for who I am. I want you to know who I am. Look at the cross. There's my glory on display. That's what God is doing. That's the God that we uh, serve and love and worship. The God who glorifies himself and the God who glorifies himself first and foremost in Christ on the cross, dying for wretched sinners like us. That's God's glory. Humiliating Seemingly defeating death on the cross. In all that, Christ is glorified. That's the scandal. But the beauty and the brilliance of the gospel. Jesus dies for our sin. And in the brilliance of the plan and the beauty of the sacrifice, God is glorified. That's God's glory. But with all that, Christ, and we know that, we know that the sin remains and rages within us. You have experienced indwelling sin this week. You have experienced its, its, its rage and its fight. We know that we are still so prone to wonder. We know that we are still so quick to love ourselves first and to seek our ultimate good in this world. We know that both of those things are bad for us. Therefore, whatever God can do to help free us from the sin that remains so that we can see Him and delight in Him and live in Him is ultimately good. 
J.C. Ryle writes, Sickness, we must always remember, is no sign that God is displeased with us. Nay, more, it is generally sent for the good of our souls. It tends to draw our affections away from this world and to direct them to things above. It sends us to our Bibles and teaches us to pray better. It helps to prove our faith and patience and shows us the real value of our hope in Christ. It reminds us that we are not to live always and it tunes and trains our hearts for the great change. Then let us be patient and cheerful when we are laid aside by illness. Let us believe that the Lord Jesus loves us when we are sick, no less than when we are well. Ryle's even bold enough to go on and say that sickness is a sacred thing, he says. Sickness is a sacred thing and one of God's great ordinances, one of God's most useful instruments for sanctifying his saints and making them bear the fruit of patience and for showing the world that his people do not serve him merely for what they get of bodily ease and comfort in this life, but for him. God troubles his people. I know it's hard. I know there's so much more to say. But he troubles his people for their ultimate eternal good. And that means point number five. This is your application. This will be brief. This is the application for the whole book of John. Believe. Believe that Jesus troubles you because he loves you. Believe is how you see. Believing is how you get a sight of the all-glorious Christ that is life. Believing is how you are called and commanded to respond to Christ's revelation in these earth-shattering six verses. Determine to trust God entirely now, and then, when from your perspective things fall apart, which they will, renew, rehearse, and rest in that determination to trust God entirely. Believe that God is really God. Believe that He's big enough and that He's wise enough to know what He is doing God is always up to infinitely more than we can see. Trust him. Trust him that he knows what he's doing. Trust him that he's good. Trust him that he is out for your good. For you, a day is 24 hours. For God, it's a thousand years. His timetable may be different than ours. His timetable is better than ours, for he is concerned with eternity when we tend to be concerned with today. Whatever bad you are facing right now, no matter how big the bad, Romans 8.28, it either applies or it doesn't. It is either true or false. And I refuse to shove Romans 8.28 aside and not use it. And since we saw last week in 10.35 that Scripture cannot be broken, Romans 8.28 must be true. And if it's true generally, it must be true for you. It must apply to your current circumstances, no matter how bad they seem. Good is the goal. Good is the end. And in Christ, that is guaranteed. Let Christ's evident love of Lazarus here help you to see and believe that he has that same love for you. We are all Lazarus. We will all eventually die. In Christ, we will all eventually rise again. We're tempted to say in stories like this, well, easy for Lazarus, he's going to be raised. There was a happy ending to his story. But so so are you. You two are going to be raised. And there is an infinitely and eternally guaranteed happy ending to your story. And so you must learn to read your circumstances in light of God's love. You must not read God's love in light of your circumstances. Because we we tend to get this entirely backwards. Yes, God's love sometimes does not feel like love. But it is love all the same. That's why you must combat what you sometimes feel with what you always know. Ryle again. The children of God must constantly school their minds to learn the great lesson now before us. Nothing so helps us bear patiently the trials of life as an abiding conviction of the perfect wisdom by which everything around us is managed. Let us try to believe not only that all that happens to us is well done, but that it is done in the best manner, by the best instrument, and at the right time. Believe. Constantly school your mind. Fill it with thoughts of the providence of God, the good providence of God that he has promised is working for your ultimate eternal good. And so, yes, God ordains your suffering. 
Yes, God sends your suffering. Yes, God directs your suffering. But God has promised to use your suffering. God has promised to be with you in your suffering. God guarantees good out of your suffering. God will end your suffering. God will reward and redeem your suffering. God will glorify himself and bring about your good in your suffering. Do you trust him? We sang it. I'm so glad Jeremy put it right before the sermon. A lot of us just sang a bunch of lies before the sermon. Do you really believe this? Whatever my God ordains is right? We just, sang, we just publicly professed and sang that whatever my God ordains is right. Do you really believe that? Is how you respond to the difficulties of life demonstrating that you believe that? Is your lack of forgiveness for some other person a demonstration of that? Is your anger at the Lord for something a demonstration of that? Is your discontent, your whatever, do we really believe that whatever my God ordains is right? And I, you know, I, I, I think I still struggle to really believe and confess that. But if we could see his glory and our goodness bound up in that glory, if we could see eternity and what he's doing, we would happily sing that song. I'm going to close with a repeat quote. I'm going to keep using it until you start believing it. I have been so blessed uh, working through John Flavel's book, Keeping the Heart with the Men. Uh, this has been a very important book uh, for me. Uh, here's what Flavel writes. This is mind-blowing. He says this, and we're done. It may support your heart to consider that in these troubles, God is performing that work in which your soul would rejoice if you could see the design of it. If you could but see how God in his perfect plan has exactly laid out the whole plan of your salvation even to the smallest means and circumstances. Could you discern the admirable harmony of his divine dispensations, their relations together with the respect that they all have to the ultimate end? Had you the freedom to make your own choice, you would of all circumstances in the world choose those in which you are now yeah, that was mind-blowing and game-changing for me. I'm still wrestling with that. He says, if God is really sovereign, perfectly good, perfectly working all things for your good, and he is, if you could step back and see the whole big picture, if you could see exactly what he is doing and what glorious result he was working toward, if you could see that, then you would pick for yourself the exact circumstances in which you find yourself right now. Because those are the exact circumstances that he has chosen for you right now. And he is sovereign and he is good. Yes, God troubles his people. Yes, you have, you are, you will face all kinds of hardships and difficulties and sufferings, troubles in this life. Again, let's not minimize that. Let's not act like that is easy. It's not easy for me. But this perspective, these truths can transform our experience of those Troubles, knowing the God behind them, knowing the good God behind them, knowing his good purposes behind them. He troubles because he loves. He troubles to display his glory, the sight of which is life itself. He troubles for our good to purify us and prepare us to enjoy him an abundant life for all of eternity. It is for the glory of God, Jesus says. And so is all that you have, are, and will face. And so trust this God because he's this powerful and he is this good. And your end will be eternally better than Lazarus's because Christ is life itself. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you do not hesitate to reveal to us that which is true, even when it's hard and difficult. Father, I never want to uh, bludgeon circumstances with just the bare truth of your sovereignty. Father, I want us to see the goodness of it. I want us to see the design and the aim behind it. I want us to see the temporary and light of the eternal. 
Father, I want us to mourn, but not mourn as those who have no hope. Father, because what hope we have in Christ. But Father, how we struggle to see eternity. How we struggle to see who you really are and what you are really doing. Father, please help us to believe. Continue to give us an increasing sight of the glory of Christ. Continue to expand and grow our affection for him. Father, you tell us that you delight in your beloved son. May we delight in your beloved son. May he be our, our joy. May our life be for him and for his glory. Father, please help us. And Father, for those who are here in this room right now in the midst of very real and very trying and very difficult troubles, Father, I pray that these words would in no way minimize the difficulty of those things, but I pray that you could use the promise of your presence, the promise of your power, the promise of your purpose, Father, to encourage those in the midst of those trials, that they are not the end, that they are not that which is ultimate, that you have promised to bring about uh, good um, through those things. Father, it is hard. We ask that you would help us. Help us to trust you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have promised to be with us and that you have promised to work all for our good. Help us to believe. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.